Our first reading today is taken from Judges chapter 19, verse 1 to chapter 20, verse 2. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite, who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterwards, the woman's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gebeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gebeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gebeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gebeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjaminites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveller in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, the young man with us. We don't need anything. You're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her 
and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into 12 parts, and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Then all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and from the land of Gilead, came together as one, and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of God's people, 400,000 men armed with swords. The second part of our reading is chapter 20, verse 18 to 35. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjaminites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gebeah. The Israelites went out to fight the Benjaminites and took up battle positions against them at Gebeah. The Benjaminites came out of Gebeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. But the Israelites encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord. They said, Shall we go up again to fight against the Benjaminites, our fellow Israelites? The Lord answered, Go up against them. Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time, when the Benjaminites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offering, offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant was, of God was there, with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministering before it. They asked, Shall we go up again to fight against the Benjaminites, our fellow Israelites, or not? The Lord responded, Go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. Then Israel set an ambush around Gibeah. They went up against the Benjaminites on the third day and took up positions against Gibeah as they had done before. The Benjaminites came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before so that about 30 men fell in the open field and on the roads, the one leading to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. While the Benjaminites were saying, we are defeating them as before, the Israelites were saying, let's retreat and draw them away from the city to the roads. All the men of Israel moved from their places and took up positions at Baal Tamar, and the Israelite ambush charged out of its place on the west of Gibeah. Then 
10,000 of Israel's able young men made a frontal attack on Gibeah. The fighting was so heavy that the Benjaminites did not realize how near disaster was. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and on the day, the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjaminites, all armed with swords. Our final reading today is taken from chapter 21, verse 15, to the end of the chapter. This is on page 266. The people grieved for Benjamin, because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, With the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men here left? The Benjaminite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that the tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives, since we Israelites have taken this oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjaminite. But look, there is the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. So they instructed the Benjaminites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards and each of you seize one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us the favor of helping them because we did not get wives for them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath because you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjaminites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Thanks, Jennifer, reading that. And look, as we're reading that, I'm conscious that this is strong stuff. It raises a lot of um, painful things. It's not to be taken lightly. So it's worth saying at the top that if this does raise particular things for you, either things you need to talk to someone about on the back of it or you need praying through with someone, or you just have questions, then please do grab me um, or one of the members of the staff um, and uh, come and talk to us or um, ask for prayer afterwards. We're happy to do that. I certainly feel as we come to this, we need prayer, all of us, me for wisdom, as we handle this, you as you listen and work out how to respond to this. So let's ask the Lord to help us first. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Sometimes, though, the cut feels deep, but we know, Lord, that you only make an incision like that to restore us and to heal us, because you are the great restorer, the great redeemer. And so we pray that as we hear this and see your words today, we might understand its implications for our lives, and you might help us to see how this leads us to the Lord Jesus Christ, to rely on him more fully and to trust him. We pray for his name's sake. Amen. Well, look, sometimes in life something happens which is just so shocking that it acts as smelling salts to bring us to our senses. Sometimes it happens on a society-wide level, often it happens on a more individual level. Um, we've had a number of things like that in the news over the past 12 to 18 months. One thing that's not escaped your notice, I'm sure, is the level of knife crime going on in London. Last year was the bloodiest in recent memory, 135 deaths caused by knife crime across London. 
the first one of the year on my very own estates just a few doors down from where I live. And it's caused people rightly to reflect on what's going on because it seems symptomatic of much that's wrong in our society. And so people are finally starting to ask the question, what are we doing in our culture? What's going wrong in our society that is causing this to happen and we don't even know what to do about it? It's acting like smelling salts to catalyze some really important conversations. Sometimes it happens on a personal level. I remember a number of years ago at a different church, I was meeting with someone uh, one-on-one who was struggling with alcoholism. He was a very able, gifted young man. He was a barrister, and he was in complete denial about the alcoholism. It was plain to all that he was addicted, but he thought he was in control of it. He even turned up to the church weekend away drunk and with alcohol in his bag. And despite trying to talk to him about this, trying to urge him to get help and to go along to Alcoholics Anonymous, he kept saying that he was in control. But one night it came to a head when he was in his office, drunk after hours, about 2 a.m., got locked into his office and suddenly panicked that he was going to be discovered in the morning, still drunk by his colleagues and the mask that was slipping already would soon be lifted. And he reached out and phoned in an absolute panic, contemplating suicide, and phoned me up at 2 a.m., And that turned as the key moment for him to actually seek help, to get dry, to become sober. And wonderfully, he is now trusting in the Lord Jesus and is dry to this day. But that was the moment. It was so shocking that it woke him up to what was going on in his life. These chapters are awful chapters. And if they're strong stuff, they're supposed to be because they're showing us how bad things can get. And the point is to act as smelling salts. Look at chapter 19, verse 30. One of the turning points, really, in the, in the passage, chapter 19, verse 30 on 263, everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. You see, it's a turning point. It, they're saying, this is how bad it's got. Now, part of the reason that often extreme events are required in our lives individually or on a social or corporate level, community level, for us to wake up is because so much of our human endeavor is to resist the truth. We desperately need to protect our egos because we're defensive and shallow by disposition. And so we spend so much time deflecting rather than confronting the reality of what we're really like, which is probably why step four of Alcoholics Anonymous, the most successful addiction rehabilitation program there's ever been, is to take a searching and fearless moral inventory. In other words, don't sugarcoat it. Look at what's really going on. Don't bargain it away. Don't compromise. Don't self-justify. Confront the facts. And I wonder if, like me, you've been looking at the news recently and you're thinking, we need to do some of that. I wonder in a gathering like this as well, whether in your own life you might have had a thought that actually you need to do that. Because in Judges, it's um, cyclical, but we've been saying all along, it's a downward spiral as it goes round and round. It gets worse and worse. And so in these final chapters, this is the lowest ebb. This is one of the worst moments in the whole of Scripture. This is one of the lowest moments in the whole history of Israel. And the Lord wants us to see how bad things get if we reject him, if we turn our back on him. Not so he can condemn us. Please hear this rightly, because I'm conscious sensitive consciences here might mishear this. This is not to condemn you. And I know you find this emotionally trying as I do, but this is to bring you to a point of change and restoration if that's what's needed. That's certainly, I think, what's needed in our lives and society as a whole at the moment. 
Let me just give a couple of words on structure. It's really simple. It's chapters 19 and 21 show the moral chaos that results when we reject God. And then the middle chapter, chapter 20, shows us the judgment that comes when we reject God. But in that middle chapter, there are seeds, little first rays of hope, if you like, so that we're not left in despair at the end of the book, you'll be pleased to know. But let's look first of all at 19 and 21 and the moral chaos that comes when we reject God. Now look, there's a lot going on here. There's more than we can go through. There's probably more than we can actually fully bear, so we won't be able to go into everything. But what we need to see, first of all, is that all of these problems, everything that is going on, stems from a theological problem, a worship problem, a problem that comes from us rejecting God. You get it at the bookends of this um, passage, chapter 19, verse 1, and then chapter 21, verse 25. Look at chapter 19, verse 1 with me. In those days, Israel had no king. Now, that is not a political statement, though it is politically true. They didn't have a king, but that's not a political statement primarily. It's a theological statement. It's a statement about worship, because Israel did have a king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. God was their king. In the ancient world, a king was there to protect and to rule, to restore a people and to give them laws which would help them to be governed and to flourish in life. And they had a king. God was the great king who did that. Ever since Israel was first gathered together, when God comforted them and protected them by redeeming them out of Egypt, he saved them. He was their protector. He took them out after the Passover. He led them away from Pharaoh's army, defeating that army and redeeming them, liberating them. He led them into the wilderness, into the desert, and there he covenanted himself to them and they to him. He was going to be their king. And like a king, he dwelt in the midst of them in a tabernacle. He wasn't distant or remote on cloud nine. He was right in the midst of them. And he gave them a perfect law that brought freedom and joy and contentment, if only they would follow it. But as we've seen in Judges time and time again, they would not follow it and they would not follow him. They turned away from him, not because of any deficiency in God, but because of the perversity of their hearts. And then, as today, whenever someone turns away from God, they don't turn to nothing else, they turn to anything else. Israel had a king, but they turned to false gods, idols. The false gods the idols of the nations around them, the false gods and the idols of the land of Canaan. It is in many ways one of the great ironies of our time that as the secularism hypothesis has been pushed and we're told that people are becoming more and more secular, having turned away from Judeo-Christianity in the West, that people haven't turned to atheism or to nothing, no. Read the reports, look at the um, sociological analysis, they've turned to alternative spiritualities and to idolatry. In other words, they've turned to worshipping anything, materialism, career, popularity, social media, beauty, whatever it is. Turn from God and you will find many more pretenders for the throne of our hearts ready to capture you. And so we found it today. But as they've turned from God, the main focus of these chapters is on what results, the moral chaos, as I've called it. Moral chaos, not just because evil things are done, but because there's no consistency at all in those evil things, because people at one moment bemoan the very same thing they do in the next moment. It's just complete absence of any moral framework. It is chaos. First and for the all of chapter 19, there is this hideous incident with the Levite and his concubine. Look down at the second part of chapter 19, verse 1. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. 
We should just pause there for a moment because there's a shock right away. This is one of God's ministers, a Levite, one to minister in the temple. And he has a concubine, that is a mistress who's not his wife, who lives at home with him. So already he's contravening God's good standards for sex and relationships. She's unfaithful to him, so he travels to her parents to try to persuade her to come back. And whilst there with her parents, we get a window into the culture of excess and greed at the time, as day after day, the father-in-law persuades him to stay as they go on a five-day drinking and eating bender. Eventually, even on the last day, when for all good sense he needs to leave so he can get to a safe town for his travel, he stays too late, which causes many of the problems that then result by waiting until after lunch. Then there's the shock that as he does move away from the Gentile area of Jabus, which is not yet part of Israel, which will soon become Jerusalem, to the Israelite area of Gibeah, they end up being in great danger. So they would have avoided the non-Jewish area because it would be dangerous, but they go to the Jewish area where people should look after one another, and it's more dangerous. It's where it all happens. Verse 11 of chapter 19. When they were near Jabus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. They're taken in by a seemingly kind old man who initially seems like the one person who's seeking to do the right thing in Gibeah. And you kind of think, finally, some ray of hope in this awful episode. The owner of the house, the man, he kind of takes them in. You think he seems to be a decent guy. And then look at what happens in verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. And you think, okay. And then look at what happens next. And it's just like a sucker punch. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now. You can use them and do to them whatever you wish. I mean, what to say? Where to start? Of course, there's just the sheer brutality of it all, isn't there? It's just gut-wrenching. Notice two things. First, the event is deliberately echoing Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. That is held up even in our culture. You know, we know the phrase Sodom and Gomorrah as a paradigm of how bad things can get. Here, this is God's people and it's the same. That's how bad it is. But there's also the chaos of it. The old man who initially seems concerned to do the right thing is the very person who instigates the atrocity in many senses in the response to the mob outside. Take my virgin daughter, take the concubine, use them as you see fit. The wording is awful. Then there's the fact that as ever with moral chaos, it's always the vulnerable and the weak who suffer. It's the women, not the men which is so often the case in many parts of the world throughout history. And then there's the awful, evil, callous response of the Levite in the morning, which couldn't have escaped your notice. He should represent God, but when his concubine lies there on the threshold of the door, seemingly clawing to be let in, how does he respond? Verse 28, he said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer, no compassion, no concern, just treats her like some cheap thing. I mean, what to say about this? There is the sexual depravity of it all, 
there are two things we need to separate. There's the violent nature of this, the gang sexual assault. There is also the fact that it is linked initially with a distorted view of sex and homosexuality. Now, please let me say clearly, what the passage is not doing is linking homosexuality to violence. It's not doing that. Those are two separate things. But both of them are held up in the passage by implication as being far from the purposes of what God intends. Both of them. We can't avoid that homosexuality is consistently in Scripture held up as being contrary to God's good story for sex and relationships between a man and a woman. And so the fact that it's mentioned here is part of the distortion of what's going on in the culture. But then there's the other thing here, which is, which is also contrary to God's good purposes, which is the vulnerable aren't protected. And on that, I think we really need to look in the mirror as a church. Because as a church, according to statistics, one in five LGBT people experience abuse at some point in their lives just for their orientation. As this is something that the church doesn't really talk about. So on one level, the church will be either completely unclear in mentioning any kind of sexual ethics that would stand up to the sexual revolution, as though the gospel wasn't preached into the Greco-Roman world, which itself was in the grips of a sexual revolution. And so the church just goes with the flow. But on the other hand, in the parts of the church where sexual ethics are maintained, there doesn't seem sufficient compassion for an engagement with the LGBT community about the abuses they actually experience. It is grace and truth we need. And in this passage, there's neither either. We have to both champion the protection of the vulnerable, including those in the LGBT community, and also be robust enough to say there is a good design for marriage, there is a good, better story, and it's heterosexual marriage, and be unashamed about that no matter how the culture batters us for it. And if that's raised something directly for you, please come and talk to me afterwards. But coming back to chapter 19, the Levite inexplicably does even more hideous act of cutting his concubine up into 12 pieces, which in chapter 20, verse 6, he lies about, and it seems he does it just to try to get revenge on the Benjamites. And so verse 30, as we've seen, everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been done. We must do something. Awful. And then there's chapter 21, which all result from this. The evil revenge Israel take on Jabesh Gilead, their own people for not coming out to battle. Chapter 21, verses 10 to 11. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. And there's a key phrase in there. Kill, actually, is devote to destruction, which you'll remember came up earlier in the book of Judges. This was what Israel were to do as an act of divine judgment on the pagans in the land of Canaan. But now things have got so bad, they're doing it as they turn on one another. Then there's the bizarre grief by Israel that Benjamin has almost been completely wiped out when they are the ones who did it. They take revenge, and then they seem to mourn the results of their revenge. It makes no sense. Then they decide that they have to keep the tribe going with a few hundred people that are left. And the only way to do that is to encourage procreation and children. But they take this ridiculous vow in 21 verse 1, saying not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. So where can they find wives for the Benjamites, for the few that remain? Oh, well, they've made a vow, so they can't give theirs. So what do they do? They encourage this awful activity of stealing women, forced marriage, taking 400 women of Jabesh Gilead for them and then letting them steal women 
from Shiloh, a peaceful place in a time of celebration. In other words, their vows mean they can't willingly give their daughters in marriage, but they sanction women being stolen because that's somehow better. Do you see the utter moral chaos going on? Now, I have to try and summarize a few things here. Three things, I think, that really mark this out. First of all, the very people who should protect the vulnerable sell out the vulnerable for their own selfish interests consistently in this passage. Secondly, there is moral freefall across society at all levels, most shockingly of all amongst God's ministers, the Levite. And thirdly, there is moral chaos. People are outraged about something, but totally blind to the fact that they are doing the same thing, if not worse. Can I ask you, does this strike you as chillingly familiar to our situation today? Let's take those one by one. First, the people who should protect the vulnerable sell out the vulnerable for their own selfish interests. Think of the racism and xenophobia expressed towards migrants and displaced people across Europe right now and over the past few years, particularly by the governments of Europe, governments who are put there in place to protect the vulnerable. That is one of the key functions of government. And they're so gripped to the populist that they often sell them out just to win a few votes. Are we not like them, guilty of sacrificing the vulnerable on the idols and altars of our own selfish interests? Then there's the moral freefall, most shockingly of all amongst God's ministers. We, like them, have seen an erosion of sexual ethics, lust, objectification, excess. But we're so cowed by public opinion in the church, the very few people in the church will actually speak up for God's better story for sex and relationships. Or, on the other hand, successive child sex scandals show that when the church is really confronted with something scandalous in sex, it will sacrifice the vulnerable on the altar of its own reputation. And thirdly, moral chaos. People are outraged about something but blind to the fact that they do the same thing. Think of it. The outrage, rightly, are the excesses of the banks and big businesses that led to the credit crunch, expressed by the very same culture that is still in the grip of excess of materialism. Or we rightly rail against the exploitation of women. Think about the grip of hashtag me too. Rightly calling out the sexual exploitation of women by men in power. But we say nothing about pornography, which makes hashtag me too look like child's play. Because the size of the pornography industry used far more by this current generation than any other generation before does more to exploit women, more to subjugate women, and perpetuate the trafficking of women worldwide than anything contained in the hashtag me too movement. So we call out one, but not the other. It makes no sense. Because one's trendy, the other one's not. Moral chaos. This is the moral chaos that results when we reject God. And the question for us is this. As shocked as we may be by judges, are we shocked by what we see in our own culture? Because I think the tragedy of all can really be that we're not shocked anymore. We're inured to the news. We're so used to it. But please don't think God has lost control. We need to see God's hand of judgment on this. Secondly, the judgment we face when we reject God. Chapter 20. We need to read chapter 20 really carefully because at face value, you may think Israel are doing something right finally. They seem to turn to God and you think, 
oh, thank goodness, they're doing something right. Chapter 20, verse 18. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjamites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. And so you look at this, you think, well, isn't this what God wants? He wants Israel to seek his will. Isn't that what they're doing? And God seems to approve of this course of vengeance. He says they should go up. But look carefully. Look at the question. It's not a genuine question. They're not saying, should we go up? Should we take this incredible act of disproportionate revenge? They're saying, who should go up first? And look at how the questions change. Verse 18 is, who should go up first? Then verse 23 they say, shall we go up again to fight the Benjamites? And then verse 26, the, changes, the question's changing still. They wept and fasted before the Lord, presented burnt offerings, and inquired of the Lord, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites or not? So in other words, to start with, they're looking at little more than a show of religiosity as they ask the Lord to baptize and rubber stamp their already wicked decision. That is what's going on. And the Lord is acting in judgment. That's what's going on. He's not approving of the action. He's sending them into battle as the just consequences of their wicked actions. It is very striking. Three times here, God gives them over to the consequence of their decisions. Three times in Romans chapter 1, we get the phrase, in the consequence of sin, God gave them over. That's what's going on. Sometimes the worst justice that can be ministered out is to say to someone, you want to live that way? Do it. Go for it. That is what God chillingly here is doing. He's letting them go with the consequence of their decisions. He's not approving of it. His justice is such that he says to a culture, you want to live out reference to me? You want to see the whirlwind that results? Reap the whirlwind. That's justice. Some years ago as a child, my mother made some mince pies around Christmas time. They just got out the oven and I desperately wanted one. I said to her, can I have one? She said, they're far too hot, don't take one yet, you have to wait till tea time. Then she left the room, so I did what any greedy nine-year-old would do if they don't listen to their mother, and I grabbed a mince pie. But I heard her turning around, she'd forgotten something from the kitchen. She started to come back in. I had this mince pie in my hand, what was I going to do with it? So I did the stupid thing, and I popped it in my mouth whole. And I bit down on it, and the searing pain as that mince meat burnt my mouth. You know, my mouth was blistered for the whole of Christmas. I couldn't taste anything. I couldn't feel anything. It was agony. Well, look, it's a silly tale, but in many ways, as a culture, we're like that. We take from God what is not ours to take, the moral decisions, living outside of his moral law. We bite down on our choices and the searing pain, and then the blisters, and we can't taste anything anymore. Joy, gone. Contentment, gone. Pleasure and satisfaction, gone. It's all gone. There's no taste anymore in society, which is why we're such a culture of excess. But it's the just consequences of our rebellion against God. We think we know better than God. We tell ourselves we're an enlightened people. We take God's commands as mere light-hearted suggestions that can't possibly be binding for us today. After all, we know better, don't we? The arrogance of Western civilization as it sneers at the rest of the world on any issue that when people dare to say that we might have got it wrong. And then we bite down on our choices. And we experience pain. But the Lord gives us over to it, not so he can condemn us, but so that we might come to our senses. And in many ways, this is how dark and bleak things get. 
there can be little doubt that at the end of Judges, Israel is at one of its lowest points. And I don't know about you, and I don't want to be depressing, but as I look around in our culture, I sometimes wonder, is this as low as it's going to get? But as I close, it's been said by many different people in different ways that we, sometimes when it's darkest, we can see the stars. Oscar Wilde arguably put it the best. He says, we're all lying in the gutter. The difference is some of us can see the stars. I want you to see the last few stars in this passage, stars of hope as we close. First of all, do you notice that as the Lord gives over the Israelites in these verses to the consequences, the just consequences of their sin, that they actually do start to turn back to him for the first time in a long time? This has been a big theme in Judges. How often does the Lord work in judgment and then bring people back to him through that? And so there's this tantalizing bit in verse 26. Look, the third time, the third cycle of judgment from God. Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel and they sat weeping before the Lord. Finally, they're weeping about something. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord, really inquired of him. In those days, the ark of the covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar. And we know that Phinehas from Numbers 25 is a godly man full of the zeal of the Lord. So the ark is there. A godly man is there. God is working through this judgment to bring them back to himself, the son of Aaron ministering before it. You see, it seems that God giving them over to the consequence of their sin is bringing them to their senses bit by bit. This is the first ray of hope in a number of chapters in Judges. I have to ask, might that be what's going on in our society at the moment? Might it be that all the chaos we feel, all of the soul-searching about what's going on and the mess and who's going to get out of it, is to bring us to an end of ourselves? As I often say, the hardest thing to give is in for us as human beings. Will we give in and stop telling ourselves the lie that we're enlightened people, that we can govern ourselves? We can't. We're sheep without a shepherd. We need God. We're making a mess of our world. And I make a mess of my life without him, don't you? And at this Lent period, this is not the time for us to sit in judgment on the culture. This is, entire, this is the time for us to sit in ashes of repentance with our culture. Because it is our culture. It's not them and us. It's just us. Will you use this Lent period to pray? Maybe to weep. what's going on? To cry out to God, turn us back. Maybe in your own life you're wondering what's going on. Cry out to him. You will not find him slow to answer. He will answer. He's got a great track record of that. Finally, there's the hope in the key phrase at the end, chapter 21, verse 25. Look with it. Look at it with me. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Of course, on one level, it's a line of condemnation, not hope. But on the other hand, it implies the route to restoration, doesn't it? For if the problem is that Israel has no king, the question is, what could it be like if a perfect king came along? It's tantalizing because it implies that in Judges, we've seen that the right judge for a period, can bring about some semblance of restoration. And the judges are key because they're always of the people, so they represent the people. But the problem is, is that because they're of the people, they have the sin of the people, so they can't really save the people in a permanent way. 
So what Israel needs by the end of Judges is quite clear. They need someone who is of them, who can represent them. But they need someone who's not subject to the same faults and sin as they are. (laughs) The Bible resolves that in the most marvellous way. Jesus Christ, fully human. He is one of us. He is God with us. He perfectly represents us. But he doesn't share our faults, our sin. He is without sin. He is fully God and fully man. When the judges are raised up, Israel is delivered. The better the judge, the more Israel is restored. But ultimately, no judge delivers Israel perfectly. But what if there was a perfect judge? He could perfectly restore God's people, and so he does. Jesus, who, unlike the judges in this book, delivers his people from God's judgment, not by dishing it out, but by taking the judgment that you and I deserve on himself. Jesus, who draws out draws us out of the darkness, not by throwing people into the darkness and moral chaos, but by himself entering into that darkness on the cross. As he dies, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes on the darkness so that he can draw us into the light. Jesus, who never, never sacrifices the vulnerable for his own agenda, but himself becomes vulnerable and is sacrificed so that we can be restored no matter what we've done. Jesus is the true and better judge. He is the true king, the king of kings. He's the only one who can offer us salvation and restoration. You know, there's a deep longing in every human heart for a king, the great king. It's why so much of literature is about that. The king who will return and restore all things. It's why we get so hope-filled with a new leader and then get so despairing when we see the reality that they're not perfect. But we have a perfect leader. Let me close with this. Hebrews 4, 15, 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So have you found judges dark, and disturbing as we all have. If you've seen broken lives and broken heroes, then in that darkness, look up. Look to him, the morning star of hope, shining brightly. He is the perfect king we all need. He's the only hope for our culture. He's the only hope for us. May he bring us to our senses and turn things around. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we need Jesus. We see the awful consequences of a culture back then as it turns away from you. But if we pause for thought and reflect on our own context, we see the awful consequences of a culture that turns away from you now. Lord, help us not to sit in judgment, but to sit in the ashes of repentance, crying out as a priesthood before you, interceding on behalf of our world, our communities, our families, our neighbours, that you would work by your spirit to turn things around. Apart from you, there is no hope. In you, there is sure and certain hope. We ask all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.